Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. What a great time of worship and excited to be gathered together with you. I'm going to ask you if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78. We're going to be reading some of the first few verses of Psalm 78 as we study that this morning. And if you would, once you get there, stand to your feet and join me in, as we read through the Word of God here, the first eight verses of Psalm 78. And this is what the Psalm says Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. You may be seated. Have you ever heard someone tell a really good story? Maybe if you're like me, you've got some master storytellers in your lives. I, I'm not one of them, but I can think back to a few throughout my, my life, and one specifically that comes to mind is a camp counselor I had when I was 12 years old. Now, we as a boys, 12-year-old boys, we were heading out to church camp in the middle of Lake Erie on an island called Kelly's Island at a camp called Camp Patmos. And our counselor, Mr. Watts, was driving us out to the camp, and he was telling us a story as we were going. And he was telling us about a Lake Erie monster the myth of this monster that had been seen in the lake for many, many years. And he told us about many of the mysteries of people seeing him, and some people who saw him were never seen again. Boats disappeared, all these things. And as we get to camp, we're there in the midweek, and we're around the campfire, and he takes the opportunity to continue the story. He told us that actually he had saw an article just that week that somebody had spotted and had a sighting of the Lake Erie monster. And he told us it wasn't very far from the very place we were. Now, as you can imagine, us young boys had a hard time sleeping that night. But the next day, he wanted to take us out by the shoreline, and, and he wanted us to look at the sunset as it was going down. And he encouraged us to get near the water's edge and to look out at the beauty of the sunset. And then he reminded us, hey, don't forget, maybe tonight we'll be lucky, and we'll catch a glimpse of that Lake Erie monster. As we were looking out on the horizon, all of a sudden a creature came up out of the water. I turned and was running as fast as I could. I felt like Scooby-Doo. My feet were spinning. I was going nowhere. All the boys with me were screaming like little girls. And one of my friends, Dan, I hope you're not watching online. 
he soiled himself. (laughs) Now, what we came to find out is that our camp counselor had put another counselor up to swimming from under the dock and popping up out of the water. But you know, it's interesting how riveting and how captivating a story can be. When we think about the, the culture of camp culture, you know, that story actually leans into what we expect to happen. Young boys at a camp getting scared to death and learning a couple of life lessons along the way. But storytelling can be such an important part of shaping and molding a culture to have common expectations and common norms, common beliefs. Yeah, I was reading an article in Forbes magazine I wanted to read a quote for you from one of the articles. It was about storytelling. This is what the writer said. They said, storytelling is at the core of culture. It is how histories are passed down, how customs are shared, and how traditions become endemic to a group. You know, researchers tell us that 65% of what we say every single day is actually storytelling. Whether we're talking about ourselves or telling stories about other people, God has actually created us to be storytellers. Now, as we think about this idea of telling stories, and we're moving forward in our vision series that Pastor Allen introduced last week, we're going to see that this is going to become an important strategy for us to pass something down to the next generation. But before we go there, I want to remind you of what the vision is that Pastor Allen introduced to us last week. This is what he told us. He said, this is what God is compelling us forward with. First Naples glorifies God by being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church, raising up the next generation of disciple makers, church planners, missionaries, and world changers to reach Naples to the nations. I don't know about you, but when Pastor Allen introduced this last week, I got excited. This is a big vision, and it is not going to be easy for us to do. This week, we're going to talk specifically about what it means to be multi-generational. I sat down with Pastor Allen a couple weeks ago, and I said, hey, what exactly do you mean? Just so we're on the same page. What exactly do you mean by multi-generational? And Alan said, well, it's really twofold. The first aspect of this is that we want to reach every generation that's alive in our world today. And what's, what's unique about this time in our history is that because of modern medicine, the, in, in the era of the church, there's more generations alive in the church today than there's ever been before. Now, this brings a lot of complexity because each generation has their expectations of what church should be like. But Alan said we want to reach all those current generations, make sure we're serving them, discipling them, and pouring into them. But he said the second aspect of this is maybe even more important He said, the second part of this is that we need to reach the next generation. We need to go beyond this time and what we desire and what we want to think about how do we reach generations beyond us here from Naples to the nations. That's a big task, a big challenge for us to accomplish. The way that he presented this last week was through Deuteronomy chapter six, specifically in verse two. Here, God is giving Moses the strategy, and Moses is then sharing that out with the people of how do we reach the next generation. This is what it said in Deuteronomy 6.2. He said that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. See, faith is not passed down in a large group setting. It's actually passed down in the home. It's done locally from a father to a son to a grandson. And here God's declaring, this is the way we're going to get it done. This is the way that the future generations are going to know, fear, and love God. 
So this is what I want us to see this week as we start to unpack Psalm 78 and think about what Asaph is teaching here as he's writing this psalm is that our multi-generational vision is to continue a legacy of faith that reaches beyond our time to future generations. And in order for us to accomplish this, we need all current generations working together. Now, what we're gonna see as we try to unpack this. So we're actually facing one of the greatest challenges in the history of the American church. Our culture has deemed that we are actually living in a post-Christian era in the U.S., So this is gonna make this challenge of us reaching beyond our generation even harder than maybe it was a few decades ago. The second part though that we're gonna look at is here in Asaph's writing in this Psalm, we're gonna see that there actually has been times in the past when generations were falling away. They were actually rebelling against God. And that's exactly why this Psalm was written in Psalm 78, to encourage and challenge and inspire them to get back to the things that God has called them to do. And so I hope we can pull that out and unpack that this week to understand how we're going to accomplish this vision. But as I mentioned, we have a problem. You know, as we think about the challenge we're facing is that the the continuation of the legacy of faith is waning. It's declining in our culture. How do we know that? Researchers have done surveys and polls to try to understand what is going on in America. And if you look up here, this is a chart that kind of maps out over time the nuns. And you might say, what in the world are the nuns? I'm not talking about a sisterhood of nuns. This is nun, N-O-N-E-S, meaning they have no religious affiliation at all. They don't ascribe to being tied to any type of religion or Christianity or, or any type of form of organized religion. If you look back to 1940, 5% of Americans said that they had no religious affiliation. Now, if you go forward 70, almost 70 years to 2008, it grew by 10% to 15% over 70 years. But then look just six years from 2008 to 2014. It's already grown almost another 10%. And when they look specifically at adults under the age of 30, 36% said that they have no religious affiliation at all. Now, maybe you're here today and you would say, hey, Andy, you know, I actually would fall in that category. I don't really have like, a, you know, a religious affiliation, you know, I'm, but I'm here checking things out. That's great. I am glad you're here because you're going to get a chance to hear a little bit about what we're supposed to be doing so that as you look at Jesus and you think about Christianity, we're representing it in, a, in the right way to you so that you can know him. But what's scary as, as we look at some more statistics, James White in his book, Meet Generation Z, which are all those who are under the age of 30 that are adults. This is what he said, more troubling is that of the 85% of American adults who were raised Christian, nearly a quarter no longer identify with Christianity. Former Christians now represent 19.2% of the U.S. adult population overall. Now to put this into perspective, says Alan Cooperman, Pew's director of religious research, there are more than four former Christians for every convert to Christianity. Now, I'm not a math whiz, but I know that if you add one and subtract four, it's not gonna take long before you get to zero. So the question that's before us, I think the challenge that is before us is are we a couple generations from the church in America completely disappearing? Well, I think we have something to say about that. The Lord has something to say about that 
as we look at this vision to be multi-generational. Now, as we go to Psalm 78, I want to give you some background and context so you understand the challenges they were facing in their day as they were looking at the strategy to overcome the challenge. Now, at the time that Asaph is writing, it's about 800, 900 years before Jesus is born. And the time that he's living, the nation of Israel had actually split and divided into two kingdoms. Division happens in nations, right? We see that. But what had happened is King David was a ruler over the United Kingdom of Israel. His son Solomon was a ruler over the United Kingdom of Israel. But after Solomon, the northern kingdom, which is called the kingdom of Israel, or sometimes called the kingdom of Ephraim, because Ephraim was the largest tribe of people in that northern kingdom, they decided that they wanted to do their own thing. Now, that's not a big deal, except for the fact that God had ordained that in Jerusalem is where the temple would be, It's where his presence would be, it's where his priests would be, and it's where all the ordinances that he had given them to know him and to love him and to pursue him would happen in Jerusalem. The problem for the northern kingdom is Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. And they don't want their subjects going down there because they might be persuaded or or tricked or taken advantage of. And so they decided to create a new religion on a new mountain where they would worship God's gods that were very similar to the nations that were around them. That's why Asaph is writing here, because he's reminding that northern kingdom, saying, hey, you guys are pulling the generations away from the true God. You're forgetting how you even got to this land. You're forgetting about how God had called you after his own name, and you're walking away to serve false gods. Generations were falling away from true faith. Now, Asaph, as he's writing here, we come to 78 verse 2, and Asaph says something about what he's revealing to them, about the the strategy and the method of how to go forward. He says here in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, there's two words here I want us to, to really look into. The first one is the word parable. That word parable in the original Hebrew is actually could be translated as a proverb or a statement of wisdom. Here, Asaph is trying to drop some wisdom in for these people so they don't continue down the path that they're on. What's the wisdom that he's trying to drop? He's telling them that one generation has to tell the next generation about what God has done in the past, what God is doing in the present, and also then demonstrate a life of faith. They have to tell the stories. They have to go back to the word of God and point to the word of God and show how he's done great things in the past, how he's showing up in the present, and then live like they actually believe that God exists. That's the only way they're gonna change the momentum of the tide that is rolling away from God and from faith. Now, a second word that's here that's an important one I want us to see is he also says here that there are dark sayings. He's gonna utter dark sayings from of old. And it's kind of weird, honestly, the way that he says it because he says they're dark sayings of old, but they're things that they've heard and known from their fathers. The dark, dark sayings, the word there in Hebrew really just means mysterious or hidden. But how can something be mysterious and hidden if it's known? It's confusing. But Asaph here is actually trying to tell them that in the stories of how God has worked in the past, there's actually some hidden information there that's going to reveal who the Messiah is in the future. And if you know the stories of God, if you know what God has done in the past and you listen to his word, 
when the Messiah shows up, you're going to know who he is because he's going to fulfill ultimately what God was already foretelling in the past that may not be fully understood. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with multi-generational ministry? What does that have to do with a a vision to be multi-generational? Asaph is telling the people that if you don't pass on the stories and the information about God and all the things that he has proclaimed for us to do, future generations won't know who the Messiah is. And guess what? We know who that person is. It's Jesus. They were looking forward and would only know him if they knew the word of God. We look backward and only know Jesus if we know the word of God. And guess what? There's still more prophecy in the word of God saying that Jesus is coming again and I believe it's gonna happen soon. But we have to be faithful to teach and to know and to do the things that God has called us to do in order to pass this down from generation to generation. So here, let's look at the solution that Asaph is giving here in Psalm 78. As we go forward, we want to see how to continue the legacy. And and Asaph tells us it requires intentional instruction. There's two ways that we have to intentionally instruct. The first one is we need to declare God's works. We need to tell the stories. Look what he says here in verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Now, you may ask, what exactly were the deeds? What were the wonders that had been done? Well, if we go down to verse 11 in Psalm 78, we're going to see because Asaph is going to tell us. Here he says in verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them in the sight of their fathers and performed wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night with a fiery light, he, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly from the deep. Asaph here is pointing back to the Exodus. And he's reminding the nation of Israel how God had called them out. They were in bondage and slavery under the tyranny of Egypt, being oppressed, and they were calling out to God for salvation. And God sent them the prophet Moses. And Moses came and spoke to them and led them out. But the way that they were led out is by the miracles of God, miraculous things that had been done. He split the sea. He actually had a cloud, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, whether it was day or night, to lead them to where they would go. And even when they were in the desert and they were thirsty, millions of people had water to drink when the rocks split open and rivers came out to give the water to all the millions of people and their livestock. Why is this story important for them to know? Well, obviously, they need to remember God's provision. They need to remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's glorious deeds that he's done in the past so that they can trust him in the present. It's absolutely part of it. But there's also something dark and hidden, a prophecy within this. I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here the Apostle Paul, this is after Jesus has died, had been buried, rose again, the church has started, and now Paul is trying to illuminate for all the Jews that are in the synagogues the, the prophecies that, this, that Jesus fulfills. This is the Messiah who was to come. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For do not, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. So here Moses is telling them, look, remember the story. 
Remember God's faithfulness. Remember how he called us out as a specific group. Remember that God had a plan, that he was ultimately gonna raise up a Messiah through the line of Judah, through the line of David, to save Israel. And look what he says here next after he talks about that same spiritual drink. He goes on to say, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? The Messiah. It was Jesus. Here, Paul is telling them, you have to remember and understand, Jesus didn't come into existence that night in Bethlehem on Christmas when he took on flesh. He was already alive, part of the Godhead, working in the midst of the nation of Israel. And he was actually the fountain of water that broke out was Jesus doing his work to save and preserve the people who had been released from the bondage of slavery. Now, I wanna give you another picture to help us understand this a little bit better. Because if we go to John's gospel, John, the very first time that he records Jesus speaking to anyone and boldly telling them that I am the Messiah was actually to a woman sitting at a well in in the area of Samaria. And this is kind of an awkward way to present yourself as the Messiah the first time, and I'll tell you why. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were seen as a lesser people group. You wanna know why? Because they lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Ephraim. And God, after they had been disobedient and rejected the true worship of God, sent the Assyrian army down and destroyed them. And they ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians and becoming half-breeds of Israelites. Part northern kingdom and part Assyrian or pagan. And here Jesus is going in to meet with this woman at the well. And it's interesting as we come to verse four, it says here that he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to go there. Why did he have to go there? Well, he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Now, Joseph is the father of Ephraim. Ultimately, the place that Jesus is going is to the very place that Asaph said are gonna be lost if they do not tell the stories of what God has done to remind them of his faithfulness and to do the things that God had told them to do. Now, Jesus sits down at the well with her as she's coming out and he asks her for a drink. And she instantly, noticing that he's a Jew, says, oh, why why would you ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. This is kind of awkward. And Jesus looks at her and says this, that ultimately, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink instead of offering to give me one. And she kind of snickers at that and says, well, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a thing to draw water. How are you going to give us water? Jesus says here in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here's what's interesting. You're like, Andy, why are you telling us this story? He's going to the northern kingdom of Israel where none of the Jews would go. Why? Because God still loves those people even though generations have been lost. And he pursues them even though they've rejected him. And he goes specifically to an Ephraimite, right, in the area of Joseph, descendant of Joseph and Ephraim. And how does he describe himself to her? I'm a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, if she had heard the stories and been reminded of the fact that God saved them in the wilderness, and ultimately that was a picture of what the Messiah would do, she would get it. But she doesn't. 
She's still trying to figure out what he's saying and understanding that he's a prophet. She goes on, she wants to ask him a question. And this is an interesting question when you think about passing down stories from generation to generation. Look at verse 20. She asked Jesus, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Isn't it interesting that right here in this moment, God's plan for passing down faith from generation to generation, we see the result of when it's not done. She's asking Jesus, should we worship up here on this mountain? Should we worship down in Jerusalem? Where does true worship actually take place? And Jesus corrects her just like Asaph does in his Psalm in verse 22. He says, you worship what you don't know. He's saying, you don't know God. You guys have abandoned him. You're no longer obeying him. But he says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Ultimately, as she hears this and is processing this, she obviously remembers the story of a Messiah that was supposed to come. Asaph talked about, maybe she even read Asaph's Psalm in Psalm 78. Asaph said that the Messiah would come through Judah, through the line of David. And she said, hey, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna tell us all things. I'm looking forward to that day when the Messiah comes. Jesus looks at the woman at the well and says, I who am speaking to you am he. And here Jesus is revealing the fulfillment of the promises that were supposed to be passed down from generation to generation. Stories are so important. If we're going to accomplish the mission, the vision that we have, we have to tell the next generation about Jesus. If they're sitting underneath of a tree and looking around at creation, they might realize there's a God, but the only way they're gonna know Jesus is if we tell them. We need to share the good news of the fact that he died on the cross for their sin. He rose again, and if they put their faith and trust within him, they'll have salvation. Pastor Allen said this last week, every generation that is born is an unreached people group. We have to remember that as we think about the next generation. They're not born Christians. They have to come to know Jesus. And unfortunately, as research tells us, many Christian-born children, born into Christian families, are falling away. Why? Because the stories aren't being told and they don't understand the why behind it. But it's important for us not just to think about the stories, you know, how we proclaim those. I have a friend of mine, actually, that, that, that a couple of years ago got a diagnosis of cancer, a very serious diagnosis. And another friend of ours, his name's Paul, he was actually going on a tour of, of Israel and going through the Holy Land. He had the opportunity to go down in the valley where they believe that David fought against Goliath. And while they were there, they walked over to the brook because that was the place where David found the stones that he ultimately used to take down Goliath. My friend reached down into the brook and grabbed a stone and put it in his pocket. And when he came home, he came to my friend and he pulled out his hand and he said, here, he put the stone in his hand and he said, I want you to remember that God has defeated giants in the past and he can do it again. My friend holds that stone today and he is cancer free. Now, we have to declare what God has done in the past so that we can trust him in the present. But when God shows up in the present, we need to proclaim that to the next generation so that they can see that God is still at work. But it's not just the stories. Asaph goes on to tell us that if we're going to demonstrate intentional instruction for the next generation, it has to be demonstrated through life of faithfulness. Look at what he says here in, in verse 5. 
He says, he established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's the thing we have to remember as we try to reach the next generation. It's not enough for us to say that we love God and have faith in him. We have to actually live like we believe it. I mean, how easy is it for children to look at their parents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles who talk about God and say he's so important but live their life like he's not real? They're gonna see that that's not authentic. They're gonna know that that's not real. The demonstration of our lives is gonna ultimately teach and instruct them what we truly believe about God. You know, in the, in the giving of the law to Moses, God, when he was given the 10 commandments, actually tells us that sin can be passed down generation to generation. Look here at Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image and you shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. Wait a second. Our sin problems get passed down to our kids. That doesn't seem right. Well, the problem is it's our responsibility to teach the next generation how to know God and to love him. And if we're not intentional to teach them to love God, then we're unintentionally teaching them not to. We're teaching them to run away from him. Here specifically, Moses is telling them that if you put anything else before God, guess what? The generations after you are gonna know it and they're gonna do the same thing. You have to live a life of faithfulness. But here's the amazing promise. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, he tells us that if we are obedient, that'll last way beyond our time to future generations. Deuteronomy seven, verse nine, know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. See, we have to be faithful to obey. It's not enough for us to say we believe in God and the fact that we put our faith and trust in him, but we have to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. You know, one way that I think about this and, and trying to understand how to do it wrong or how to do it right is maybe going back to the nation of Israel again because God gave them very clear commandments when it came to the celebration of the feast. We're actually coming up to Easter. Passover for the Israelites is only a couple weeks away. But every year, God commanded that the Israelites were supposed to celebrate seven feasts. Three times a year, they were supposed to actually go to Jerusalem and be in the land of Jerusalem for these feasts. Now, what's amazing as we understand this, God was actually planning a day a time and a place for them to meet the Messiah face to face. Let me explain it to you a little bit more. Passover, how did we get to Passover? How was Passover established? Asaph talks about it in Psalm 78. When they came out of the nation of Israel, the death angel actually came into Egypt and killed all the firstborns of the nation of Egypt. And the only way the Israelites would be spared, if you remember, they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. So they would do this, the death angel would then pass over their house and they would be saved. Ultimately, this was the plague that brought them out of Egypt, freed them from the bondage of their slavery, was the shedding of the blood of the lamb, released them from the slavery. They go out with Moses and then God says, hey, I don't want you to forget that. 
Why? Because it shows my power and provision, but also there's something that's going to happen in the future and you can't miss it. So he told every household that every year they had to get a lamb, perfect, spotless, without blemish, and they had to bring it into their house five days before they would sacrifice it. Then they would have a meal. And as they're sitting at the meal, the youngest child was responsible for asking three questions, and they all began with the word, why? Isn't it interesting that God, even in the feasts, wanted the children to question the why behind what we're doing so that they could understand the purpose behind it. Now, in Jesus's day, there was probably a million Jews that would descend upon Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Passover. In order to have the lambs ready, they ultimately had to raise them and, and have them born near Jerusalem because one lamb would be sacrificed for every 10 Jews. If there's a million there, we're talking 100,000 lambs that had to be sacrificed on Passover. Now, these lambs were born and raised nearby in a town called Bethlehem. And we also know there was another lamb born there, the Lamb of God. Now, as they would come in in preparation for the Passover, all the lambs would be brought into the temple five days before the sacrifice. Why? Because they had to inspect them to make sure they were perfect, without spot and blemish. The very same day these lambs walk in, the people traditionally would sing psalms and say praises to God. At that moment, Jesus actually gets on the back of a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. They laid down palm branches and Jesus rode into the temple. The people who were singing to the lambs turned and started singing to the lamb. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if they wouldn't sing, the very rocks would cry out. Why? Because God ordained from the foundation of the world that the lamb of God would ride into the temple to be sacrificed for the people. Now, over the next four days, they're inspecting the lambs, making sure they don't have spots or blemishes. Over those next four days, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, by Pilate, by Herod. Every single one of them say, I can find no fault in him except for the fact that this guy believes he's the son of God. And the Jews call for them to crucify him. The day that Jesus is hung on the cross is the day the lambs are being sacrificed. The blood of the Lamb of God is being poured out in order to save the people from bondage and slavery to sin. Now, the very next feast they would celebrate was the next day. It was a high holy day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The tradition, as, as Jewish history tells us, is the, the, the people would go into their house and they would have a spring cleaning. They would get all the leaven out of their house because leaven was a picture of sin and they were getting ready for the, the celebration of the holy days in Israel. And so they'd get all the leaven out of their house. And one of the things they would do with the kiddos is they would take some leaven and they would hide it somewhere in the house so that they could involve them in the process. The kids and the dad would go and they'd scour through the house and try to find the leaven when they find it, they'd wrap it up in a, a, a cloth and they would take it out and they would bury it, picturing the removal of their sin in preparation for the holy days. Now, wouldn't you know it that after Jesus died on the cross, they wrapped him in a cloth. They took his body and they buried it in a borrowed tomb. And he took all of our sin and buried it there. Now, a couple days later, the next feast that they would celebrate as part of this event was the Feast of First Fruits, and it happened on the very first day of the week, on Sunday, following Passover. And at this feast, they would take the wheat harvest, and they would wave the wheat 
as a, a wave offering before God in the temple. And at the very moment that the priests are waving this offering, the women are going to the tomb and seeing the stone rolled away and the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. People ask me when I teach this, how did the Jews not see it? How did they not recognize Jesus? He died on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He rose on first fruits. How did they not see it? They were going through the motions. They were too busy worrying about doing what they thought they needed to do to get something from God to, to actually see and know him. We have to be careful that we don't do that either. We don't want to just go through the motions. When we tell our kids that going to church is important, guess what? We need to wake up and make sure that we get here. When we tell our kids that the word of God is powerful, we need to turn off the TV and take time reading it to them. When we tell our kids that prayer is speaking to God and trusting that he can work all things, when we get in the middle of a fight or we're having a hard time in our family, do we demonstrate it by getting on our knees with our kids and praying with them? When we talk about the fact that we're supposed to give to those who are downtrodden and poor and give to the Lord so that he can use it for his kingdom, do we demonstrate sacrifice in our lives and in our families so that they can see that we're putting priority on the things of God? See, our kids watch us. The next generation is watching us. They want to see what we really believe, and they're going to know what it is by how we live. If we go through tradition and never explain the why, it's just going to breed rebellion in the next generation. We have to tell the stories. We have to make sure that we're living it out. Let me give you a quick little story, an example of, of how we can miss this. There was a, a young girl who was preparing Easter dinner with her mom. And they were getting the ham all ready to put in the oven. And right before her mom put it in the oven, she cut the top of the ham off and cut the bottom of the ham off. And the little girl looks at her mom and says, Mom, why'd you do that? And she kind of thinks for a moment and goes, you know what? I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. Let's call grandma. She gets on the phone, calls grandma. Hey, mom, I'm getting the, the Easter dinner ready and, and the ham, and I cut the top and the bottom off like you always taught me. Why do we do that? There's a pause on the phone. You know what? I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. Let's call great grandma. So she gets on the phone with great grandma. She says, hey, mom, why in the world did we cut the top and the bottom off the ham? And great grandma on the phone just starts laughing. And she said, don't you remember when you were little, the oven was so small, I couldn't fit the ham in there. <laughs> now, now it's, it's funny when we think about it in that context, but how often does that happen where we pass down traditions from generation to generation and we never slow down to explain the why behind it? the importance of knowing God and loving him, not just, not just going through the motions, but actually having devotion and a passion and a love for him. Now, it's interesting, as, as Paul was writing to a pastor, Timothy, that he was pouring into in the New Testament, first, first century church, one of the biggest churches in the world at that time, he was trying to encourage Timothy in his ministry. So he was facing hard days and I'm sure trying to figure out how to reach the next generation for Christ. And this is what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. What's Paul saying? 
Timothy, the reason why you're here serving the Lord is because there were generations before you, your grandmother, your mother, that had a faith that they instilled in you and trained into you and taught to you so that you could be equipped to do this. Now here's the challenge I have for you, mom and dad. You might have a Timothy in your home. Are you sharing the stories about God's greatness and what he's doing in your lives? Are you demonstrating your love, your passion, your faith for your children? Grandma, grandpa, are you taking time to open the word of God and to help your grandkids know and love Jesus like you do? You know, maybe you're here and you don't have kids, but you've got nieces and nephews, you've got neighbor kids, you've got those around you. We have 700 kids already signed up for VBS. We need workers to help pour into the next generation. We have Easter just around the corner. There's gonna be a whole ton of kids here that need to hear about Jesus. Are you willing to step into the gap and help the next generation to know the Lord? Imagine what our world could look like if we really do accomplish this vision. Pastors sent out to plant churches, missionaries sent to the mission field, disciple makers working in the world and in their workplace and in their schools to reach people for Christ. We could see tens, Lord willing, hundreds of thousands of people come to faith in Christ because of what God did here in Naples as we had the mission to go to the nations. We can do this. You know, uh, St Steve Green wrote a song in, 19, in the 1980s that was a beautiful picture of ultimately what we should be striving for. I want to just read the, the verse of that song to you before we close. This is what the song says. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we lived inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. You know, maybe you're here this morning and hearing these stories about God working in Israel and ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of him coming as the Messiah to die on the cross for your sins and to rise again victorious. Maybe today the Lord is stirring in your heart and you're just like, man, I, I don't know if I've ever believed in that. I don't know if I've ever put my faith and trust in Jesus. I wanna give you an opportunity to do that this morning. You know, in Romans 10, verse nine and 10, Paul writes and says, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's all it takes. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that he died on the cross for you and rose again. It's all it takes to claim that faith, that salvation that we have in the fountain that overflows with eternal life. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you would say, hey, I need to make that decision. I just want you to pray a simple prayer with me. And it's not the prayer that saves you, it's the words of your mouth and the belief in your heart. And this is what I want you to say. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died for me and for my sins and rose again. And I wanna confess him this morning as my Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, save me. 
If you prayed that prayer this morning, you have just passed from death to life. You have taken a drink from the fountain of eternal life in Jesus Christ because there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except for the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have had to just study your word this weekend. To think about what's happening in our culture as we're moving into this post-Christian era where people are running away from the church and Lord, running away from you. And we know it's not because of you. You're beautiful. You're glorious. You offer us salvation. It's because of us. Lord, that, that we would tell the story, that we would be faithful to live it so that the generation that comes behind us would find us faithful and give us the ability to pass that faith on to them and for generations beyond. Lord, I pray you'd do a work in us, that you would receive all the glory for it as you move and work in this place. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, go out and be the church, have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.